Hey guys, Sklar Brothers here from View from the Cheap Seats podcast. And this week we have one of the best sports writers in the game. And he's got a great podcast as well. Jonah Carey joins us on the podcast. Did you have fun on View from the Cheap Seats, Jonah? I had the most fun and my commute was about 14 steps down to my living room. We did it in your living room. We're in Denver. It's a little road. uh, I'm going to call it a road victory for us all. We all There's no one I want to talk to more than who right now during these baseball playoffs than than Jonah Jonah Carey. Carey. So join us on this episode because we take the deepest dive. Let me just say there is a three a <laughs> Mordecai three, three finger, finger brown reference. There you go. That's and by there. the way, Gar Ryness is not here. I'm kissing him. I'm, I'm giving love. a shout out now. I feel like he always needs to be at least in spirit. When we love talk. to the batting stance yes. guy. Guys, I want to tell you about a great sponsor I have, Bompus. They're premium high performance athletic socks, and they're so comfortable you're never going to want to take them off. And because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters, for every pair of socks purchased, Bompus donates one pair of those to those in need. Almost 1 million pairs donated to date. 15% off the first purchase of four or more socks. Plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral and buy some comfortable socks. Hello, welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. If you haven't listened to the show before, it is uh, just that what that there. Uh, I just the title says it's a conversation with me. It's kind of a free flowing type of conversation, less than a you know a uh, question and answer, real stiff sort of thing. We just go for it here. We take that ride, man. If you like my theme music, there it's by a band called Less Blanks. They are real good. They also have a band called Holy Folk. So you might want to check that out. <coughs> that cough, allergy cough, sinuses, allergies. We live in Los Angeles. The air is filthy and there's always something blooming. So it's just a real fucko to your nose if you're a guy like me. Uh, I'm going to try to keep this brief. Oh, uh, r- before I get into my rant du jour, uh, today's guest is Peter Biebergall. He wrote a great great book called too much to dream a psychic a psychedelic american boyhood it's uh, really great we have I, peter and i talk like we're old old friends and it's a really fun conversation i really had a goddamn blast talking to him but uh i had two conversations yesterday in the world of non-podcasting one both with complete strangers one really inspiring one really infuriating the infuriating one to the cut to the chase was some dipshit motherfucker who thought fracking is not that bad. And her whole argument was her parents were conservatives <laughs> and she didn't want to pay $20 a gallon for gas. And that uh, the earth is going to be around for billions of years. So what's it matter if we destroy the environment because we're not going to be here for it. And my argument was it's destroying the earth and it's killing people. And she went back to her argument of $20 a gallon for gas. And I was like, I was like, she was like, do you want to pay $20 a gallon for gas? And I was like, if it means people don't have to die. Yeah. I will. And she was like, oh, I'd like to see that. I would like to see that. It's like, 
So you're saying you'll kill people so you could have cheap gas, which, you know, in essence, we're already doing anyway and have for decades. But I'm just that's and I was and but that I was like, that's that's humanity. That's that's is that like how a lot of people in this world, specifically our fine country, think of like, I don't give a fuck. Give me cheap gas and I don't give a shit. Boop, boop, a do. Just give me some Pizza Hut and my cheap gas. <laughs> hey, I don't give a shit. Give me my McDonald's. Give me my give me my Apple computers. I don't care if there's 12-year-old Asian kids jumping out windows with nets so they don't die. I want my computer. That. But then the other conversation was with my AAA guy. Not that I have a AAA guy. But the guy who came to change my battery on my car, which I want to say, I'm not proud I own a car. I don't want to own a car. I live in a city where I have to own a car. Hopefully soon moving to a neighborhood where I won't need a car because I don't, I don't like giving my money to gas people. But the AAA guy and I just sort of stumbled into this conversation also about fracking that then spun out into the corporations and how they don't give a fuck and how the politicians don't give a fuck and how they just are there to protect corporate profit. And, you know, the working man is no one gives a shit about the working man. And afterwards, I, I literally I felt empowered. I was like, yeah, I'm a I'm a blue collar. You know, I come from a blue collar family. I'm working class. The The working man is knows what the fuck is going on. We're going to rise up and we're going to win. We're going to, the you know, old good old Marxist working class stuff. And and he, you know, right before he took off too, he said, you know what? If you have goodness in, in your heart, righteousness will win. And I was like, fucking A. Fucking A it will. And then I went and talked to this fucking idiot who, fracking's not that bad. Nuclear waste isn't that bad. I did, they just dump all the fracking chemicals into the ocean. But it, it's not that bad. We don't need that ocean. We don't need to eat fish. We don't need fish oil to make our brains run better. <laughs> it's like, you know, none of, none, of that, none of that sediment of the oil and weird residue came back on uh, uh, during Katrina and landed all over New Orleans, which now can't be cleaned up. I mean, that those cancerous chemicals will always be hovering around the, one of the greatest cities of all time. But whatever. It's, I, I don't, I'll have, I'll have cheap gas. Who cares if them jazz musicians down there in New Orleans get cancer? I'll have cheap gas. Who needs culture and history? I'll have cheap gas. <laughs> all right. All right. I'm amped up. I don't know what's going on here today. And I don't know why I'm talking like I'm in the Catskills. Hootly do. Scapity boo. <laughs> here we go. Conversations with Matt DeWire. Scapity boo. Uh, enjoy this conversation with Peter Biebergall. He's a great guy. Buy his book, Awesome Times USA. Here we go. Uh, just for my listeners there, your book is entitled Too Much to Dream, A Psychedelic American Boyhood. And it's it was what really stood out to me in this book was i think it just like there was a lot of personal things that really sort of hit home like we're both um we're both uh, suburbanites of two really racist cities <laughs> right boston and chicago very segregated i didn't mean to insult your city i hope that didn't insult you no no i meant it more of a joke but it, there is i've been to boston a few times and it is the similarities to Chicago are over or overwhelming, especially the uh, for sure. 
the doughy doughy headed Irishman that <laughs> I have a fr- yes. I have a, a curly haired balding uh, doughy sort of pudgy friend and he's Irish and I I felt like I I kept seeing him on the street and going <laughs> it was like hey there's Jim and then it was just another Irish guy <laughs> named Jim <laughs> probably or Patrick but Patrick yeah. But uh, and I think you know when I don't know if it's just suburban life in the era because we're similar ages. Is the there was sort of this sort of discontent in seeking. I don't know if that's just specifically a suburban um, thing, but uh, uh, sort of looking for more meaning in than than life in the suburbs. Uh, it, did you? I mean, you were definitely look seeking for something more spiritual. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I called it at the time, certainly. I didn't know that it could be anything else because everything that I read and was interested in seemed to have that um, as as a kind of underlying theme, even things like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. You know, there was something about we were just – I was actually just watching the films with my son for the first time, and, you know, the elves are sort of at the end of the story or going off to sort of – almost like a heavenly realm some kind they're they're leaving the earth the world is as men know it they say and and it almost like an avalon or some so even in fantasy which is about swords and dragons there still seem to be some underlying thing about another reality uh, another way to access knowledge that wasn't sort of part of the sort of traditional uh, judeo-christian and the way i think suburbia in particular those kinds of, you know, what we call traditional religious stuff gets gets mediated, right? So um, I think a church in a suburb may be very different from certain churches in the city, right? So um, even those experiences, I think, can be very different. And, and I know it's different now, but I think in the 70s and the tail end of the 60s, that's part of what was happening. And I think a lot of it was because people had fled from the suburbs looking for meaning into the cities but what they found there was instead of meaning they found like you're saying racism and crime and drug addiction and so this promise of sort of liberation that the 60s had foreseen didn't quite come to pass despite all the really excellent acid that everybody had access to (laughs) you know yeah, that's you know it's interesting because you're saying that, and I was thinking about my own parents and how they fled to the suburbs, and there was, I, I was it just made me curious if, sort of that search for the American perfection and dream and all that, and I think there was a discontent within my own parents if that in some way, sort of filtered down on 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 us to a degree, you know, if if that makes sense. Yes, yeah, their restlessness because. You know, I I know your your mom hung out with uh, jazz musicians and kind of had a little wild life. And my dad was like a motorcycle dude. And then it was like suddenly this generation is in the suburbs and sort of living probably very dull lives. And I can't. My father was a very discontent and sort of, you know, what happened to me sort of guy. And I, yeah. I think that sort of mentality was, was your. I can't remember. Is your dad sort of a working class guy, or was he more of a? No, I mean, that's the thing is they were both, They, my parents, I think, wanted to definitely be more than working class, but that was definitely, so their background, but um, they definitely were, you know, 
what it was more of a white collar working class um and my dad had gone to college though but had left because his father had a men's clothing store uh, here in Waltham, Massachusetts in the 50s and 60s, and he wanted my dad to come and work with him. And the next thing you know, my father is, that's what he's doing. He's working in a men's, he's running a men's clothing store. And so, yeah, there's definitely that sense of that you can have these sort of, you can still believe in those things, but maybe you have to try to put them aside for your family or for whatever other kinds of things you feel obligated to. So my parents, though, even though we we're in the suburbs, they worked very hard to, within the context of our home, have a very urban sensibility, if that makes sense. Um, but we were in the suburbs. My mother belonged to a pool club. You know, I mean, that's what you did there. It wasn't a it wasn't a country club. It was a pool club. You went there to swim <laughs> in the summer, and so that she could tan herself, and she would put the you know this. It wasn't suntan lotion. It was oil. She would put oil on, like the coconut oil, and make a, a thing out of tin foil to get the radiation. You know, I mean, to just pull it down from the sun. This was part of. You know what that part of also what that culture was. There was a kind of sense that 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 somehow gave you a sense of feeling worldly, even though you were sort of trapped. Yeah, and you, I mean, from a very young age, you were, I, I searching for like a deeper meaning. And what what about it? And sort of, I you know, the typical religions were you not finding that made you want to search for something else? Well, I, you know, that gets to, I think, in many ways, maybe it's part of the human condition, or maybe it's not. I mean, I like to think that it is, but I grew up in a very secular Jewish home, so we, I knew what Judaism was, particularly through its food and its culture and its jokes, um, but I didn't know a lot about it through what its religious aspects were. And it's very interesting, Judaism, in that way. I mean, I think you see that in other things. I think you see that with sort of like Italian and Irish Catholics, right? That they bring this whole other part of what it means to be Catholic to their experience, even though it might have very little to do with what's going on in the church, you know? So in in my home, it was – but we – in my home, nobody prayed. I mean, we didn't really go to temple. My brother was bar mitzvah, though, my older brother. Um, but it was, you know, this big suburban synagogue. And so that was my exposure, really, until I was 13, and I needed to be bar mitzvahed. And for a little while, we lived in Florida, and the only people that would – my parents didn't want to join a synagogue anymore. They were done with that. But the but they wanted me to have a bar mitzvah, and the only people that would do it without us being members were the ultra-Orthodox Jews. So I was bar mitzvahed by the, the Chabad house in Miami, Florida, by, you know, super – ultra-conservative um, Hasids, and that was is more confusing to me than the secular Judaism that I was accustomed to. So in either place, I wasn't finding anything that spoke to whatever religious or spiritual, if you want to call it, tendencies I might have. And by that point, you know, I was already starting to listen to rock and roll. And, and I think rock for me is really, um, that was my religious, that was my first religious experience, you know. 
Yeah, it's. It, oh, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just no, please go ahead. Oh, just the. Uh, that's another great part of your book is, uh, uh, and um, the, because there's your story of your sort of, uh, childhood or your your boyhood and 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 searching for meaning in life through drugs and music and and counterculture, but with that story, you have these sort of side passages where you do go heavily into like uh, music history and drug history and counterculture history, which is all the sort of shit I, I personally love. So it was like it was like an extra bonus to a great story. <laughs> but I, I was the same way where it was like I'm, that's just my childhood. The only th- sort of very things that vary from is I didn't get into like Dungeons and Dragons, but music was some sort of. I guess escape that saved me in a lot of ways. And what were some of the first, you got into a lot of like 60s music early on, didn't you? Yeah, well, part of it was because of my brother. You know, I started listening, when I was first listening to music, of course, it was Bay City Rollers and whatever else was um, on the radio. But my brother, my older brother, had his David Bowie and Beatles, Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and Iggy Pop, and so when he wasn't home, I would go into his room and I would listen to his records, and it really felt like there was something transgressive going on. That that yes, there was this other top forty pop, sugary pop, which was fine, and I liked it, but this was something else that really, you know, made me feel all kinds of weird. Whether it was that there was a you know there was a sense of there was something erotic about it, or that there was a druggy kind of thing, and. You know, there was definitely something both for forbidden and super exciting about that music to an 11, 12-year-old kid hearing it really in a way that even the doing of it was kind of furtive because if my brother had found out that I was listening to his records, I would have been in big trouble. So the whole thing had this kind of secret, private thing for me. And then, and that's when I realized that there really was, or it felt like at the time, there was like this secret language to the universe. And the Hasidic Jews didn't seem to, they knew about some other secret language, but they didn't know about this one. And this was the one that felt much more attractive. And these musicians too, they talked about mystical things. They talked, you know, David Bowie stuff is riddled with allusions to um Kabbalah and all kinds of things like that. So even not really understanding what it was, I got a sense that they too were sort of attracted and transmitting this whatever kind of weird knowledge that they thought they also had access to. And so that's that propelled. And then you add a little LSD, a little pot to the mix, and it's explosive. Do you feel like in to a degree that that the spirituality and the sort of undertones of that music led to you experimenting with drugs or made it more enticing? You know, gosh, I don't know. I think it was more like it provided the soundtrack. It, it provided a sense that that I was a I was going to be participating in something that there was a huge precedent for in a way um, that other people... Did I what? That it wasn't going. That even though I had to do it secretly, that I was plugging into something that was much bigger than me. So in a way, what it did is it gave me a sense of kind of a virtual community that's, that's, of other people that were experiencing these things. You know. Yeah, and that's that's an interesting way of putting it. Because I mean, most I felt like most drug use, and there was a lot of it in in my suburb, <laughs> was was just a 
it was just there and it wasn't something I think anybody thought about. They were just like, oh, yeah, I guess we smoke pot, right? <laughs> it's like, right. And it wasn't until further down, like when I started doing hallucinogens and stuff that you dis- I discovered there was the car- like you d- sort of got into Carlos Castaneda and all that stuff if further down in your drug world right yes and that really you know made me feel like or or gave me a sense that there that it really was part of something greater some you know tradition I mean a lot of you know, people have come out now and have said a lot, that he basically made all that stuff up. But at the time, and whether or not he did is sort of, it's inter- I think it's an interesting question. But at the time, you know, it's written like he's an anthropologist out in the field. And so it's like, wow, this is the real deal. The problem is, is doing acid hide in the, at the mall, you know, <laughs> is very different <laughs> from... <laughs> From sitting with Don Juan in his hut and, you know, and having him teach you about the, you know, the ancient spirits. So part of it was that I think particularly our generation, there was all this literature and music and stuff that pointed to these great spiritual experiences. And and, and I'm not saying they're not possible for people, but, but I think in the suburbs in the 1970s and 80s, it was very hard to come by those experiences. The very nature of using these things is fraught with paranoia. It's illegal. Everybody's watching. You know, you're afraid going to watch and see you and know. And so it, there wasn't a sense that there was this open, liberating experience. The The very doing of it felt like something off a little bit, I think, for at least for me and, and I think for particularly where I grew up and, and what that felt like. Yeah, it seemed, I, I guess I discovered uh, LSD once I'd left the suburbs and I was living in the city, so it seemed it seemed at a more pivotal time of like me discovering things, so it didn't, I guess I wasn't trapped by suburbia, and it it did, I mean, do you, do, do you believe that these sort of drugs open up doors, so to speak, a little bit? Well, you know, that's that's sort of the question. So what I would say, I will say two things about that. So, and it's, you know, and I know there's people on both sides of this. And I think that part of the problem with, I think some of the trouble people had with my book was that I didn't come down one way or the other in a way that was strong enough. I believe that I was absolutely changed by these things in a way that I think was very important, which is that it made me become aware of one, the malleability of my consciousness, and two, that there was truth to be had outside of the mainstream and the sort of what we call the, you know, normative way of looking and thinking about things. It opened, it, it made me want to pursue other ideas, other kinds of music, other kinds of art. And so, for that, I'm always grateful to it. But I don't believe that they, that these experiences will ever bring, that, 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 you know, the quote that I have in the book is Alan Watts. He says, when it comes to psychedelic drugs, when you get the message, hang up the phone. Right. So, so, yeah. So the idea there is that these are going to, it's going to open you up to something, but it's not the path. And again, speaking for myself, it wasn't the path that was going to lead me there. But I had so convinced myself that it was the path. And I would not give up on that idea that it ended up almost killing me. So, 
So the idea is, I think, and a lot of people would agree that that the idea is to not make a religion out of these experiences, but to see them as the potential for opening our minds to other things. And then it's up to us, though, maybe maybe without them, to try to figure out how to live and be the kind of people that we want to be. Now, that's I, I, I'm only speaking for myself. I would never begin to say what somebody else should or shouldn't do with these substances. And I know people who have had huge transformative experiences with things like ayahuasca. But I also know people who keep doing ayahuasca over and over and over again, and their lives are still a mess. What is ayahuasca? I don't, I'm not really sure. Ayahuasca is the is the brew. People go to Peru and places like that, and they go. They'll have these sort of week long sessions where they'll drink the ayahuasca, which is the plant based um, brew. It's a lot of, I believe, it's barks and vine, and the psychoactive substance is DMT. Right. And this. Yeah, there's a lot. Daniel Pinchbeck is somebody who writes a lot about this, and Joe Rogan, Terrence McKenna, DMT guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you know, I'm sure they're, and I'm sure they're having important experiences, and I, you know, would never take that away from anybody. I could just say that for me, ultimately, that I needed to put those aside to get to whatever the next thing was for my life. Um, but I don't regret, you know, I only regret that I ended up maybe hurting people and hurting myself a little bit too much. Um, but, you know, that's, that's, that comes with all experience, right? So, um, do you think there's, you don't a- want to put it, I'm sorry. No, please go ahead. Oh, I just, I, I, I can't help but wonder if there's like a, Westerners seem to really have been drawn to psychedelic drugs as a means of spirituality because, but it also seems like we want everything now instead of it's like, hey, I don't, I don't want to go to the monastery and meditate for six years. I, do you think there's... Well, right. <laughs> right. I mean, do you think that's part of why we, our culture was so attracted to that, possibly? Yeah, I think so. And But then I think some very smart people said, you don't have to meditate. I mean, it wasn't just that we had the experiences and we thought we had fulfilled it. It was that people like Aldous Huxley, who was a big meditator before he had his experience, which he wrote about in The Doors of Perception, for all intent and purposes, says in that book, you know, all this fasting and business, we really can get there much faster. So... That did speak, I think, to exactly what you're saying, which is a sense of that we do want immediate results and that working long term when you can't even be assured of what the end result is going to be, it's hard to commit. Yeah. And a lot of the the major LSD gurus of that era, uh, Ram Dass, I, it, it, the one coming to mind, kind of turned against it, didn't they? As well as uh, Ken, Ken Kesey, didn't he as well? I don't know if Kesey did in the end. You might know more. I know Ram Dass would never have turned against it, but I think he did at the end, or at least in his later writings, warn that there was the potential to be distracted by those experiences and and think that those are sort of the the end-all be-all rather than using those as a tool through which you might then have to start another kind of spiritual practice like meditation or chanting or whatever it is that's going to be for you. Do you, do you by chance, meditate these days or any of, of that? 
that, that's my Achilles heel. That's, I, I, I know that the thing that would probably change my life and is meditation. It's the one thing I don't do. So I always plan on it. Tomorrow's the day. <laughs> uh, but then justified, but justified was on last night. You know, I mean, what can I do? If you know, if you really focus in on the TV screen, you can, it can be a very similar experience. <laughs> yes. You can, you can stop all thought through television. Yep. It's very powerful. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm one who's gone back and forth with meditation, and I've been in, I've had bad allergies lately, so I'm like, ah, you can't focus on your breathing, you're too stuffy. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> right. <laughs> but, and, and you also, you had that uh, switch, which I also, and I mean, there was a lot of it that I felt like, there was times your transitions, I was like, oh yeah, I had that transition, but you hung out, You then you became very punk rock oriented, and were like hanging out with, with, uh, I guess, would you, were they called gutter punks back in the day? Well, I don't, we were, well, we were, this was in Harvard Square. We hung out in what was called the pit. So I guess it's close enough. Um, and some of those, none of the kids that I hung out with straight edge, but, but Boston in the, in the early eighties had a huge straight edge movement. Um, but those weren't the people that I necessarily hung around with. We were all stoned all the time. Yeah, straight edge. I mean, I like I liked uh, minor threat and all that stuff, but the straight edge thing, I was like, man, that must be boring. <laughs> that, that was right. I was like, well, how do you guys have any fun? And as right. as much as it, like now, I listen to Ian McKay talk, and I'm, I find him fascinating. But I was just like, oh yeah, he's great. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, now I consider myself straight edge for all intent purposes, and in that I don't imbibe in, in any sense of the word. So, um, but you know, look. The truth of the matter is there was a period of time between the ages of 15 and 17 that while they were filled with trouble were some of the best times of my life, you know, being punk and going to shows and being crazy. And, and, and I'll, I love that. I love that I had that experience and I love seeing going down, you know, I was with some, a friend of mine and we were walking down near Harvard Square and there were some kids with their with their spiked hair and all the jackets. And he said, ah, you know, they, they don't know what it was like. And, and, and I said, no, in fact, maybe they didn't, but they're allowed to have their own experience of it. You know, <laughs> like, like I'm glad every generation has its punks, uh, you know, thank God for whatever. I don't know if it does any good, but, but I would never want to take that away from anybody. It was a, it was an amazing time for me. And I, and you know, Sadly, as people who read the book will see, by the time I was 21, things got particularly bad for, for me. But that doesn't have anything to do with punk. And it really doesn't even have anything to do with psychedelic drugs and whether or not they're good or bad for people. It just has to do with me and what happened to me, you know. Now, and sort of leading into that, the the because you i mean you were it seemed like you were always searching for something within sort of uh, fantasy comic books music drugs and various other things and when i was reading the book i couldn't help but wonder is like because to a degree all those things are also a distraction and do you think that cert, that search was sort of all coming from the same space or perhaps hole in your being that you were trying to fill or in anything in that area? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think it's, it was all connected because I think that I was looking for anything that, that mirrored 
the feeling that I had, even if it was in a Batman comic book. Like whatever I could find that mirrored that feeling that I had was was going to feel like to me it had great truth. And so, and I wanted it to be out in the world because I needed proof that it wasn't just all in my head. Because if it was all in my head, then I was really doomed. It did end up being all in my head for the most part. But at the time, I was working very hard to, to figure out a way for it not to be. And that meant, you know, probably reading into things in a way that they much deeper than they probably were. Yeah, there was, I mean, there's a lot of that looking for, and I, I think it's like when you're looking for certain signs that hard, you you are going to find signs that are like, hey, you're this, you know, if you really want to go in a direction, you'll find that direction. If you're, if you're looking for it, I guess it was an easier way of putting it. Absolutely. And, but the, the other thing too is that I notice is when, and I notice this within myself is like you're seeking and if you're super into music, it's, you're always like later on, you start getting back into music again. And it's, it's always, a lot of times it's fringe. It's never like you're into like, Hey, matchbox 20. It's like, you really go the extra mile to find something new and something that evokes a a feeling, a a deeper feeling. And I I don't know what, uh, I mean, is that sort of in the same of looking for a spiritual, like, sort of that restlessness that won't go away. Uh, Probably it's definitely part of that, but I think it's also realizing that, you know, mainstream music is often kind of terrible and that there's, (laughs) there's really, there's really great music on the fringe. And, And what we call the fringe today isn't maybe even really that fringe because of the internet. I mean, I look at Spotify as some of the most incredibly obscure music that you would ever think to find and I guess by the fact that you can search for it on Spotify means it's not that obscure. I didn't have to send away for the cassette tape with the handmade label to get access to it when there was a time when that's the only way you were going to hear some of this kind of stuff. And so for that um you know I think it's great that so much more stuff is available. But yeah, I mean I think I'm always looking for something that's just off to the edge of what's mainstream and I and and I think again that's what those early experiences did for me was to remind me that there's some really amazing authentic creative people doing things that are a little bit you know off off center yeah it just like Matt Dwyer <laughs> why thank you <laughs> it's funny because there are uh, bands that have started releasing stuff on cassette tape again and I know, that's pretty cool. Yeah, at first I was like, fuck, come on, man, I don't have a cassette player anymore. (laughs) But uh, I bought it, one was by a band that I really love, and I was like, I'm going to buy it anyway, because I just, I'm like, I got to have it, because I'm that guy. (laughs) Who's got? What's the band? Uh, It's a band out of uh, uh, BC, Canada, called the Apollo Ghosts. Uh, Definitely very influenced by uh, Devo and Jonathan Richmond, if that even sounds like it could make sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. That sounds great. Yeah, they're they're really great. And uh, I, one of those bands I just randomly discovered on a blog, and they just sort of spoke to me. And, of course, Jonathan Richmond from your hometown of Boston. That's right. Who makes, Roadrunner. Makes, uh, uh, he makes brick ovens now. That's one of a friend of mine actually knows him and says he spends a lot of his time living in a tent making brick ovens. 
for 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 like pizza or just making like little brick ovens for like huts for you know what I don't know I just I know he makes them for people and he's of course he still makes music but I just that guy is so his own dude I I'm just so fascinated by yes. that uh I would imagine you being from Boston you uh, a bit of a fan of his Yeah I love his stuff you should try to uh connect with him I've he, I, he intimidates me. <laughs> yes. He's one of those guys that's so high on a pedestal for me that I would be, I would be, it would scare the shit out of me. Yes. I've contacted Ian Mackay a couple times and it, he scares the shit out of me too. But this is about you. I imagine, see, easy, can he, yes, please, please. <laughs> um, and this whole time, because you, you talk about during, in your book, about wanting to write like these great uh, pieces of work, and do you feel like the drugs and exploration sort of kept you from that? Oh yeah, because it was all about making plans and never following through. But you've made some pretty good plans. Oh, I've made some great plans. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, have, I have some friends who still owe me trips on the other side of the world when they were on drugs. <laughs> Can I? Call oh yeah. In? <laughs> exactly. But so I mean I feel like not that I wasn't really able to do anything. I mean again I there's a whole tradition of you know some of our great authors that were full blown alcoholics and drug addicts. So you know I'm not I know that it could happen for people. It just didn't happen for me. And so that's that's the experience I have to share, um, which is that it wasn't until I got until I cleaned up that I was able to put pen to paper. I don't. What makes you think that some people can create like Hemingway, where they're just fucking hammered? Because I mean, I can't. I can't send like a quick email if I've had a beer. <laughs> like I, I just, I could never understand how these guys function. It was it like a chemical imbalance that maybe it's perplexing to me, or even it is. And sadly, it's like it's or over glorified because when people are like. Charlie Parker couldn't play sober. It's like he probably could. Like there's it's not like that guy's talent kicked in when when the drugs kicked in. Right. But and then look at all the people that died young. I mean, look at Hendrix and Joplin and so yeah, it's great that they could make some great music when they were wasted, but wouldn't it be better for them to still be making great music now? I mean I I you know, the one thing I always point out to people is like Tom Waits didn't really become Tom Waits to me until he he cleaned up because then his music just continuously continuously got weirder and more fascinating. Yes. Like, I mean, I love yes. his more recent stuff over his early stuff. And it's like, that's the sober dude. And he fucking yes. monster. <laughs> it's uh, that's a real interesting dynamic to me. Uh, cause people, yeah, it's, it's a very complicated one. I don't know why some people were able to. And um, I think maybe it was that, you know, maybe if you're, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe if you're a genius, maybe that's what separates. If you're a genius, you can do it. And if you're not, then you just, you're a loser. Yeah. <laughs> they can't, you know. But I know a lot, a lot, there's a lot of people in the world who are like, consider themselves geniuses. And I'm like, I don't think you can make that call. <laughs> I was like, I think that has to happen years down the road. Don't you? <laughs> right. And what was like the the darker moments of when you were that where you were like, all right, I got to turn this shit around. 
Was there a well, defining moment, or is probably like it's? You know. I mean, I try to you know. I, there are some defining moments, I guess, in the narrative of the book, but essentially, it was that I was getting increasingly sick, right? So the, even, even your nervous system can only take so much and that those answers that I was seeking weren't coming fast enough. In fact, all I was getting were more questions and it was getting more difficult to maintain a semblance that everything was okay. So when people were confronting me saying, hey, dude, you better slow down. At one point, it was easy to say, eh, you know, but after a while, even I couldn't pretend anymore that there wasn't something seriously wrong. And I don't know, you know, I could say very dramatically, I, you know, got clean the day before I died or, you know, I was at the end of my rope. And I believe that I, I believe that those things are true to some extent. But I also think I just had this moment of clarity where I was 21 years old and I was pretty sick and I had a thought that said, Maybe you should try something different. Maybe you just shouldn't get high today. Just see what happens. Just try it. And so that was that was sort of the beginning of having a new thought, a thought that I hadn't had for a very, very long time, which was maybe don't do it. Yeah, c- confronting sobriety and all, it's like I, I, there's so many, I would say, wrong perceptions that people have of of living a sober life uh, would you agree with that I, yeah I, th- I think so like that it's always nail biting or something like that right yeah and uh that you that uh life fun fun times and <laughs> it's like right which is because right. i've had uh definitely I've, there's certain drugs i've partook in and it's just interesting when you quit something people go Oh, how do you have fun? It's like, well, when I was eight, I wasn't high on cocaine. <laughs> it was like, and I had a lot of fun when I was eight. Right, right. Uh, but you know what I'm doing to have fun these days? I'm doing a lot of the things that I was really into before I started doing drugs, which is I played Dungeons and Dragons, and I collect comics, and I listen to weird music, you know. So it's all still there. It just means that I don't, you know, I leave at 11. I guess. <laughs> you wake you know? up feeling pretty decent, I'm sure. Yeah. And that's yep. interesting because now with – do you find it strange the how with things like Comic-Con, how big that comic book – I mean, when we were kids, if you were into that shit, you kind of got beat up sometimes. <laughs> it was like yeah. you were not an accepted individual. You were a bit of a weirdo. And, uh, yep. I myself didn't play Dungeons and Dragons, but a lot of my friends did. Like I was definitely in the grouping of kids who were not the football players. <laughs> and it's like, isn't right. it, isn't it weird to you that suddenly it's like you're you can be cool and do that shit? It's amazing how big it is now. I mean, it's really and and it's interesting because I I feel like that there's a generate I mean it's obviously great for people that there's these huge communities now but I remember that feeling when I first went to the gaming store playing 1979 my brother had heard about this game called Dungeons and Dragons and, he, and there happened to be a store in Florida called the Complete Strategist and he drove me over there I was maybe 11 or 12 
And I remember feeling like I felt when I discovered my brother's albums, that this was some secret society of awesomeness that I was about to discover. And not everybody knew about it. You know, it was definitely something that was very, that I knew was marginal and I knew was likely going, was, was likely people were getting beat up about it, you know, but it was, it was so incredible to me that something like this existed and that I could be a part of it where for a lot of my life, I didn't really get to feel like I was part of much, right? So I think that that was very attractive to me and a lot of other people at that time. And then suddenly you find out there's, you know, fanzines and all these amazing things and ways of connecting with people um, that felt really, again, like really authentic, like you really had this shared language. And it's interesting today because I think a lot of groups, like sort of subcultures, are trying to create that sense again for themselves that it's a smaller kind of, I wouldn't say private, but, but exclusive, like, you know, the bronies, Do you know about the bronies. I don't. That they're the uh, grown men who like my little pony. They're called bronies. <laughs> so, you know, people are still trying to create subcultures within this thing that is no longer a subculture, you know? Yeah, it, it can't help but wonder if that's just an innate part of... People want to feel to be a part of something that maybe is a little secretive or their own. Um, and I... Yeah, because I was thinking, like, that's what you were drawn to about Dungeons and & Dragons and comic books, and now it's like... It's a little bit of a hackneyed observation, but, I mean, I I did see a chick at a party who was fucking crazy hot saying how she was a nerd and into the... And I was like, you're full of shit, man. Like, right. I was like, you've right. never had a hard day in your life. <laughs> and to, like, a circle of six guys hanging on every word. I was like, you don't know what it's like to be outside. <laughs> right, right. And then the question is, is that... Is there... Is is that uh, – does that make a person um, stronger or self-sufficient in a way to have had that experience? And so, like, what does that – what does it mean to have had that experience, to have felt like you were outside? And, I mean, I'm – I liked – now it's easy to say because I'm not being picked on anymore – that I'm glad that I had that and that despite how what people thought of me that I still did it anyways right so is there stuff like that anymore for people to do is there stuff for people to do where they can say I don't care what you think I'm going to play D&D or I'm going to or is it just so all accepted now that again I don't know if people need to have that experience but I don't maybe there's like weird internet worlds where that exists like there's like uh what is it b slash which is the subgroup of anonymous that i guess that anonymous grew out of that they don't even want to be known and i guess they do just as much weird hacking and stuff but they yeah it's like a real and i and what is in those chan rooms uh i guess there's like weird subcultures in there and yes definitely yeah but they're but are they but those but you wonder are they being public about their interest in those subcultures that's in the true. sense where they could be, where they could be, you know, maybe made to feel less than. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't even want to know what some of those subcultures are. So keep it private, please. Because, I, I you know, know somebody was telling me about the B slash thing, if that's even what it's called. And I went, I sought it out on the internet. And then the one thing before I entered the room was like, we are not responsible for what comes. And I was like, no, thanks. <laughs> I was like, right. Cause my friends like, there's some weird chick. And I was like, I don't need that on my computer. And who knows right. Right. With, <laughs> with the way things are going with our, country <laughs> it's like right. I, I don't need any right. history of weirdness <laughs> i mean i love i love the internet i've been part of internet culture for a long long time but i have to say there are parts of internet culture that just make me hate humanity all you have to do is read the comment section under any oh my god my son has his own computer now and he spends a lot of time on youtube and i think youtube is an amazing resource I mean, there's more incredible music on YouTube than almost anywhere else. Music, videos about how to make things, archival stuff, it's incredible. The comments are so unbelievably atrocious that I tried to have it blocked. <laughs> so YouTube lets you have a parental control where you can block what it calls like explicit content. Okay? So I thought, oh, it will just sort of use some kind of algorithm and maybe just like somehow black out those comments that have swears in them or something. When you do that, when you set that control, the comment sections on videos are just completely closed. That's how bad it is. That YouTube realized there's no way we can vet this. If you're going to set the parental control, you can't see any comments on YouTube. It's amazing how much hate is people and it's sometimes i'm just like what are you what does, what are you getting from this it's like to be right. i can't i have to force myself to not read them because i just like I, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to have a child in this day and age that you would have to guard against you have to guard against more now than you would have like 20 years ago oh yeah absolutely do you did do, do, yep your, your kid's probably getting through it all right, though, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit, you know, I have to say, as you know, somebody who has certainly partaken, um, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly, I hate to say this, but I'm just worried about porn for him. Not that I don't think he should look at porn, but that it's one thing to search, you know, I'm going to search boobs. Right, because he's interested. It's another thing to 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 have the results be, you know, thousands of pictures of women being ejaculated on. So, like, really, he just wanted to look at boobs, right? But you can't just look at boobs anymore. Yeah. It's so, like, it, we'd find the magazine out in a, in like somebody's trash when we were kids. <laughs> exactly. Oh my God. It is a big difference, oh. and it was like, it's Chris Hedges has a whole chapter on 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 pornography in one of his books of just how it is it feeds into racism and uh you know it's none of it's realistic it's like all the women look this fucking uber weird <laughs> with like right, and right. it's like it's i could like we grew up with relatively normal boobs in our magazines <laughs> it's like oh, right. now it's like you it's i couldn't imagine what that's Gotta cause a bit of confusion. I know there's a lot of porn advocates who are probably like, "Fuck you," but it's like, it's a little right. weird, man. It's not based in reality, and it can't be helping people develop sexually. <clears throat> I would think. Yeah, 
I don't think so. I mean, I mean, I guess, you know, again, we had our own way, but maybe it was that, you know, it was, I don't know if we say it was more rare or just, I mean, I tell this story a lot, which is that my dad collected, um, he was an amateur photographer and he used to get these photography magazines. He got one, there was one that came from Europe and it was in the back were the classified ads and there was a, an ad for like these dirty movies and the ad was literally smaller than a postage stamp. Okay. And I used to sit there when I was probably 13 years old, I used to sit there with a magnifying glass <laughs> trying <laughs> to look at this. That's all I had, you know, that's all I had. There was a the and, Scorpions album cover where the guy's hand was on a boob, but there was gum stuck to it. <laughs> Do you remember that? And I remember looking at that album like, holy fuck, I can almost see her boob. It was like... Almost, yep. Do you recall that album cover? Uh, I'm trying to think. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to look sure, it up right I'm now. I'm pretty sure it was the Scorpions. It was somebody. I'm pretty certain it was like one of their first couple albums, but it was... And I think there was a Kiss album that there was kind of a boob, and it was... <laughs> When, when you kind of never seen a boob before, I mean, that's must have what like that feeling must have been like what it was for guys in the fifties when they saw an ankle. <laughs> it was like right. Oh, I see it here. Yes, he's pulling the gum. Oh. It is the Scorpions. Love Drive is the name of the album. Uh, personally, one of the more overrated bands of that era. If you yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's... Well, I had a buddy that used to admit to watching scrambled porn just because like if there'd be a flicker. Oh, I watched Scrap. where he would. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Because pre. So yeah. <laughs> so your book. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know what's funny is the thing in my book is there's n almost no discussion of sex in the book. Um, and somebody actually asked me about that, and I just it, it just would have opened up a can of worms that I just didn't want to get into there's enough debauchery um without you know having to read about my 16 and 17 year old um fumbling attempts to uh, romance the ladies so you touch on it but it was definitely a big part of what it meant to be growing up you know i i look at I'm talking going back to this harvard square when i walk through there and i see these kids um, that were my age then, 15, 16, and I try to imagine those kids doing what me and my friends were doing to each other and to our nervous systems with drugs and sexually. It's kind of appalling because they just look so young. And then I think, was I that young? But no, I couldn't have been. I must have been an older 15-year-old somehow, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, I saw some pictures of me the other day, like around 18 and whatever, and like I was hanging around in some weird circles then, and but I'm just like, you're a fucking child, a know-nothing child. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Shoveling those drugs up my nose. <laughs> yep. And it's, even like one of my idols, John Belushi, like overdosed from heroin and, or, uh, well, yeah, heroin and cocaine, and it just, it doesn't end... It's weird how you're like not gonna be me. It's like uh, this been it's been decades and decades of being you. <laughs> it's like you're not no you're so rare to be the exception. Right, right. I mean, they say just in terms of drug addiction, the statistics are very bad. Sort of one in thirty get clean and stay clean. The rest 
don't fare well in whatever form that might take, you know? I was I was shocked to find out that, um, I guess not shocked, but that, like, William S. Burroughs shot heroin his, like, he did heroin his whole life. He never cleaned up. He was like a junkie as an old man. Yeah, to the end. I don't know. That, that's, man, that guy probably would have lived for a thousand years if he never did uh, heroin. Yeah. Although maybe at that point it's he's pickled and it's just maintaining. <laughs> That's true. It's just become his blood. You just have to, you know. That settles it. I'm going to start shooting heroin. I'm, I want <laughs> Right. You know. Yep. Forever. <laughs> <laughs> um, would you care to read a passage of this here book of yours? Sure. I have. Let me see. I just. Uh, no, it's. It's uh, and it's an incredibly yeah. well written book. It's a really. I don't like. I was trying to think of like while I was reading, is it how because I related to it so much that it was if that made it extra enjoyable. But the writing is really incredible. But it, I think that's the other thing. I think everybody will kind of. There's so much coming of age in it that I, I can't help but think everybody would have something to uh, relate to in that book. Yeah, I mean that was sort of the challenge of the book is that. While it does focus, I guess, on sort of the drug experience, I didn't necessarily intend for it to be a drug memoir per se, but rather, yeah, sort of a coming of age thing that happened in a in this particular way, but that was really mediated by culture. And so the idea of the book was to say that we that nothing happens in a vacuum, that our lives are very much mediated by where we grew up and the time we grew up and the culture that surrounds us, be it movies or music or our parents or whatever it is. And that maybe the best way to understand a larger cultural moment is to look at an individual's life. And maybe the better way to understand an individual's life is to put that place that individual within this larger context. And that that's sort of why the book has this dual nature of being both a memoir and a cultural history of, of things, because I feel like in the writing of it and the thinking about it, it, I realized that those two things for me were inseparable, that I was absolutely a product of the time and place that I grew up in, for good or bad. And so, and that maybe I could also understand something more about that time and place if I could sort of figure out what exactly happened to me. Um, so I'll just read this one, just a very short paragraph where I, I sort of started to conclude my thoughts. What I have learned, though, is twofold. First is the sticky nature of addiction itself. I can never again trust my motivation, and I can never be sure there is not some neurobiological component to addiction that could be activated by a psychoactive agent. Second, and more important, is that I am nothing if not a whirlwind of cultural and religious debris spun around until those things are a blur and what is left is simply the force of the spinning. At every moment I was fed by culture and then I brought to each experience not only the language of all the music, art, comics, and literature, but the expectations that those things held for me. And so that gets to the question, I think, also of psychedelic drugs and whether or not there can actually be some kind of purity of experience or unmediated experience. So some would say that there are certain drugs like maybe DMT that so blow you apart that you're freed from, you know, whatever expectation you might bring to it. But my my belief is that, you know, you might even be remembering a, a Ray Bradbury story you read 
when you were 11 years old, and that's what's influencing the trip. But it's being drawn up from this incredibly deep part of your subconscious that it feels like it's new. But if you were to really get down, you would see that nothing's original, that there's nothing that's somehow coming from this un, perfectly unmediated heavenly realm. That's really great <laughs> that's a really i mean it was just that's really powerful and it is true i think we kind of always expect this magic to happen in life um and i don't know why we don't look into ourselves or what we came from we always look for this thing that's nebulous and out there to solve our issues <laughs> or make us mm -hmm. whole and uh yeah I, I don't know i was really Forgive me. I was a little moved yeah. by that. <laughs> no. Thanks. I mean, and for the record, I, I'm not a pure materialist. I mean, I do, and I don't consider myself an atheist, that I do believe that there is some other greater reality, and I still believe that there is a, quote, greater meaning. But I just feel like our experience with whatever that is is going to be extremely limited, and we have to try to always remember that anything we say about it or try to say about it is still just this human of desperate grappling to make sense of something or to give language to something that really just can't be contained. And so, you know, sometimes religious language seems to do a very good job of saying something about it, but then it often goes off the deep end. Um, so for me, if ultimately it feels like art and the expression of that through music and literature is the best way to sort of get a grasp of whatever that thing is, and so that's where I tend to look for it more and more these days. Yeah, I th I do think there is, I mean, there's definitely spirituality in music. I mean, I forget what I was reading the other day, but just of like, I mean, people were probably playing music before they knew how to speak. There was always, right. <laughs> it's like, I mean, that is like, it, you couldn't get more of an ancient sort of type of communication. And I'm not a good musician, but I've jammed with people. And when it's kind of that sort of weird Zen sort of experience, it is pretty, pretty goddamn insane in the good way. Yeah. Yep. I mean, you've seen, just seen people, you know, having that moment where you're watching live music and suddenly there's some part of you that's transformed. Yeah, I saw something a, f a few weeks ago. Um, Wayne Kramer, who's the guitarist for the MC5, did this uh, little thing, but he played a few songs, and he's doing a lot of free jazz-type stuff now. And wow. his band is was incredible and it was just it was one of those things where you're just like entr entranced by the music and nothing else exists and i hadn't seen anything right. like that in a long time and you're just like that does make you go oh there is more than it just kind of takes you somewhere whether sadly it's temporary unless you could get him yeah. to play non-stop for the rest of your life <laughs> <laughs> right right that's what we need. We got to get slave musicians to play for us. Walk around next to you. Yeah, just kidnap musicians. There's a lot of them on the streets of LA. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And what 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 kind of music are you? Uh, what do you listen to these days? What are you listening to? Um, so I thought last year was a very interesting um, time for music. I did a playlist, actually, my best of for the website Boing Boing. Do you know? Yeah. The website. 
Um, and there was, um, it was a band, uh, well, the Fresh and Onlys and the band called the OCs. Oh, I love the OCs. They're sort of, uh, they're so good. And my favorite thing last year was this crazy, I wouldn't really call it metal, but it was definitely really hard rock with this crazy voodoo tinge called Goat. And I highly recommend that. Is I really think that was the best album last year. The name of the album is called World Music. And um, there's a song if you if you go to YouTube and you and you search for Goathead by Goat, I, I promise you you'll listen to that song over and over and over again for the rest of the day. <laughs> and and um, yeah, there was a band. Um, there's a guy named Tim Hecker. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's one of my favorites right now. He does kind of um, glitchy ambient electronic stuff. Um, very. It's very ambient, very experimental, really just beautiful, beautiful stuff. And so I've been listening. To, I've been listening to a lot of sort of analog synth electronic music has been really interesting to me, and some garage, sort of garage oriented punk. But I just love psychedelic rock in all its forms. Everything from whether it's from the '60s to now, there's there's just something about that and and again that's obviously a very broad term we're talking about everything from cream maybe to you know even um can there's just i mean there's so much of it that it's hard to say i've also been listening a lot to kevin Ayers, who just passed away he was the guy who founded with um he was one of the founders of soft machine which was i think the great great band of the 60s that I don't think get enough attention and he just passed away and he has an album um, which I think I'm going to look it up I think it's called Joy of a Toy and I also highly recommend that for anybody that's looking for something that's um, it's sort of proto-prog kind of the beginning of what might become um, prog I, I, what about you? What <laughs> what are you loving right now? No, really. I you know what's weird is I don't know if it's as I get older I, I get I find myself going to older music more and more. Like I've been really hung up on uh, Chico Hamilton, and I always fuck up the guitarist who played with him, Zabor Grabor. Zabor, it's he's fucking some name that's really hard to say. Abu Grabor. <laughs> I think his name's Abu Grabor. But uh, and he was <clears throat> he was kind of a jazz dude that was uh, guitarist wise was a little ahead of his time. Uh, yeah. But, uh, and would kind of like, there's like sometimes on Chico Hamilton's albums, he's, you know, it's it's not traditional like jazz that was going on in the 60s, but a little bit more orchestrated. And But sometimes the guitarist guy, whose name I can't pronounce, <laughs> is, is uh, he'll just play something and you're like, you or, it was just kind of psychedelic. And then uh, go-to's like of, contemporary music I've, i'm hugely hung up on uh the strange boys at all times um ty, yeah ty seagal is really great i don't know if you do you know ty seagal? oh yeah of course yeah he's great he also has a there's a guy that he works with named michael cronin oh, i fucking love him love his album that one album that he did i think it was two years ago is so good i couldn't they both played here i think they did sets of their own music but they played together like a, about a year or two ago and i yeah I want to kill myself for missing it, but I have seen Ty Seagal, who's fucking young. That guy is prolific too. It's like knock it off. <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah, making me feel bad. 
Uh, I, yeah, he did an album with the White Fence, I think they're called. Oh yeah, that's a little uh, psychedelic, isn't it? Yeah, and then they have their own album, uh, which I think are really spectacular. Also, this kind of lo-fi. Um, you know who's also of that sort of vein that's really quite good is a, a band called um, uh, Sick Alps. Oh, I've heard of them. I don't know what they S I C A L P S. They're definitely uh, definitely a band to look up and if if you like that kind of stuff. I do. I do. It's um. Are you uh, now? Because I you were talking about your sexual mis fumblings as it it not being in that book. Have you thought about writing another book in um, in such a vein or in other areas? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm actually, I'm 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 done with memoir, as it were. I feel like I've told the story. I'm I'm really um. I liked the cultural history part of that writing that part of the book, um, and so that's the the next direction is. Um, looking more specifically at rock and roll and the history of rock and roll is sort of told through um, the intersection of magic and mysticism and the occult and how that sort of impacted the development of, of rock music, I think is uh, sort of some of the things I've been thinking about and wanting to work on. That sounds <clears throat> pretty, pretty goddamn great. Um, is there now? Is there websites and and uh, your uh, Twitter that you can plug to uh, so people can go buy this book because they should buy this book? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so Twitter is a good way. It's just so it's um, Peter Biebergall, while well, one word and the last name is B E B E R G A L. And I have a kind of a blog that I don't maintain enough, but it's mysterytheater.blogspot.com. And there is a book website for the book, which is too much to dream dot net. All right. But people could just you know go to Amazon or go to your local bookstore, and if they don't have it, they might order it. Yeah, Amazon has it. I know because that's how I got it through you. Because you're kind. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, thank you very much, Peter, for taking out the time to do thank this. Thank you. It's really was a really it was a blast of a conversation. This is great. I really appreciate it. And thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. If you enjoyed the show, please donate some money. Please. Uh, I read. A, I got to read a lot of books and magazines and make a lot of phone calls. I got to do a lot of things. A lot of things to keep this show a-going. And uh, I like to eat. And Dustin Marshall, the guy who produces this fine pay, he needs to eat. We both need to eat. And suddenly I'm Regis Philman. <laughs> but, uh, and if you can't afford to donate, because I know times are tough... Uh, unless you're a, a corporate executive, then you got plenty of money, and you could you could donate a lot of money. Thinking maybe a lot of corporate execs don't listen to my show, but uh, if you can't afford to donate, you could go to my page on uh, on the Feral Audio site. There, go through my Amazon link on my page. Don't be giving somebody else fucking money on that website. You could buy something through Amazon. I get a kickback. Dustin gets a kickback. I get to eat some groceries. Dustin gets to eat some groceries. I get to buy a sawed-off shotgun because I'm coming for you. I don't know what that means. Uh, check out all the, the other shows on feralaudio.com, and thank you very much for listening. I think you're pretty. Power to the people. I'm just a memory.
branch of the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.